Hello and welcome to the My Favourite Film Podcast with me, your host, Gav Smith, and my co-host... Uh, me, Gary Coleman. Who seemed to have forgotten his name again. <laughs> Is that the dementia coming in now? <laughs> I'm always slightly surprised when you mention me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot I'm part of the show. You I'm, just I'm keep, like, I keep thinking I'm a listener. I keep thinking I'm listening in. <laughs> it's interactive. It's interactive. You get to talk. Um, before we get into today's film, which is yes. Magnolia, I'm going to Ooh. do the contact information, Gary. Go on then. Let me tell, me, tell me all about it. Okay. We can be contacted on email. My favorite film podcast at gmail.com. That is one of the best ways to get in touch with us. Certainly. If you want to leave us a voice message or something like that, that's a good way of doing it. Send those in for that final episode that I've talked about before. On Twitter, it's at my favorite film. Instagram at my favorite film podcast. On the good old Facebook, if you just search up my favorite film, either in the pages or in the group section, you will be able to find us. The group section also lets you talk back to us as well and leave comments and things. Great. And mm-hmm. if you can't find any of those because you're having problems or whatever, and you're like me and you've got big fat fingers, try going to myfavoritefilm.com. That's our website. And down the bottom, there are links to everything. And if they want to support the podcast, Gary, how do they do that? Yes. If you want to support us, you can pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods. Uh, I think all these platforms let you rate and review the podcast. Um, I would, I would, I'm not going to influence you, but five stars is where we're looking for. Five-star ratings and reviews. Say nice things about us. And that will help us get found by other other people as well. So that would be great. Thank you. Yeah. And do you know what? I think if anyone leaves us a five-star rating review, I'll definitely shout out their names on the podcast. Oh so if word. you want your name, shout out on the podcast. Five-star rating review. I'm going to give them a kiss. If we get five-star review, I want to give them a kiss. There you go. That is an absolute promise. You <laughs> if, if you want to you right, a five-star rating review, one star, I'm giving them a kiss. One star. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's probably better, isn't it? One star, and he'll come to your house and give you a kiss. <laughs> um, what we're talking about. Yes, this week, Magnolia. James Rodriguez came in to talk about um, Magnolia. James is a film critic. Um, a very long film, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, who makes some incredible films. And this one is just... <sighs> what is this film about, Gary? Do, do you have an idea what it's about? Um, well, it's about three and a half hours long, is what it was. Um, but don't, if you haven't seen the film, don't let that put you off. And it put me off. We discussed this in the podcast. I, yeah. I uh, Gav will tell you, I was really quite grumpy <laughs> having to watch a three and a half hour film. That's like three, three films I would normally watch. I was very, very grumpy. Yeah. Um, but do you know what? I'm so pleased I watched it. So if you haven't seen it, just pause us now, go off and watch the movie and then come back and you can join the conversation with us. It's Absolutely. definitely worth the watch, I think, yeah. Yeah. And as always, it is a spoiler-filled interview that I have with James and Gary. So here is that very interview with James. You are here for me to enlighten you, to edify you, to send you off into the now not-so-unknown future. So come along with me. How to fake like you are nice and caring. Hello, James. How are you? Hello there. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you guys? Good, thanks. Um, Hi, James. Hi. Hey. So you're coming out tonight to talk about uh, Magnolia. Before Mm -hmm. we get into Magnolia, just want to tell us a little bit about you, what you do, your relationship with film, that type of stuff. Okay. um, I'm James Rodriguez. I'm bit of a film critic i write reviews on my site the reviewing 
hey hey plug plug and i i'm a massive horror fan but i'm also extend to other genres like i i just like films really i've I've been very interested in them since i was a kid and the older i get the more i try and the more i just want to seek out however impossible it seems with everything that keeps coming out and out and out okay so tonight we're going to talk about magnolia which Mm. is not a horror film even though you just said you've got a love um, of horror um Mm -hmm. so this is magnolia from 1999 paul thomas anderson um it's a tough one because i don't know how you do this to be honest can you give us a plot synopsis is it possible to do a plot synopsis of magnolia (laughs) Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> long. One word, I, long. I can try. Um, I suppose it's just about these intersecting stories of these various people who a wide tapestry, each working through their own personal demons and trying to come through the other side, be it as better people or through or as just themselves but in another light i i don't know i'm on the spot here yeah yeah i I tried it's fine it was a good effort it was a good effort yeah Uh, to be honest with you i was i was thinking about it earlier today thinking how would you do a synopsis of this and i Mm. cannot work out how you do it because there's so many stories going on there's at least six maybe more stories in this um they are interconnected in some way but uh, not all of them. <laughs> so it, it's a really difficult one, I think, that, to do a synopsis of. So, and this one always sounds like a loaded question. Why is this your favourite film? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, I remember when I first watched this film, it was like back in 2016. It was just the night of, oh, I've got the night to myself. I have a bit of time. Let's put on a film, which is a bit longer. And I remember just ending up deciding between Magnolia and JFK. And I can't, I think it's probably because I've heard so much about JFK. It's all been built up. Magnolia, I heard enough to buy the DVD, but not enough to, not enough to have some preconceptions about it. So I thought, I don't know as much about this. Let's try it. And I just remember like after the three hours went by, I was just like, I could have been with this for another hour. Wow. And and it's it was the oddest thing. The as time went by, it just stayed in my mind and I just kept thinking about that film and how much I loved scenes and performances and characters and it just got to a point where I was just like, yeah, I think this is my favorite film. And I've seen it two more times since then. Still haven't seen JFK by the way, but <laughs> But sure, it's, it's quite just, a good film. <laughs> I've heard it, but I think I made the right choice that night because I've seen Magnolia twice more, yeah. once in the cinema as well. And yeah. all that every time it just feels like, yeah, I don't think this is gonna change. And I just think it's so I think it's one of those, yeah, it's a long film, but I yeah. think it earns it. I think it doesn't feel like it. I mean, I've had films I've seen which have been 90 minutes and they felt longer than this in all honesty mm. yeah actually I can agree with that yeah yeah mm. I mean you've seen so you've so not... when you say, when you say oh, you, sorry when you say you saw it in the cinema 
when I was watching it, I was thinking, I was just thinking, Gabriel, you I think I would have liked to have seen this at the cinema um, to, to kind of immerse him to it, you know, where there's no mm. other distractions. Was it, was it, was it I know our audience probably going to struggle to see this in, but was it a different experience seeing it in the cinema? I mean, yeah, because I couldn't pause it. I couldn't like get distracted by mm. say my phone or the washing mm. machine going off or anyone coming home or anything it's just you're in there you're in the darkness there's people around you who are laughing and reacting but mm. it's just a solitary experience which cinema really excels at providing and mm. it is a different experience to watching it at home i would recommend it yeah, yeah. i must be I, see i did see it back in 99 in the cinema mm. so that i saw wow. on its original release way back when it had a, a very limited release but then it was showing in some of the I think it went to major cinemas. It was probably 2000 that I would have saw in the cinema because it kind of was limited and then it got a bit right. of a bigger run. Um, mm. But yeah, I saw it there before I saw it on DVD. I don't know. I, I bought it on DVD when it came out and the original DVD was two, a double disc. You had to have two discs huh? and it stopped an hour and a half in and you had to put the other disc in to watch the other oh. half. It was before the days that they worked out, you could dual layer things. Mm. So you did actually have a, a, a break halfway through. I seem to remember the cinema I saw it in did a break halfway through as well, which was kind of at the time where intervals were something you would have in a film because you can't have a film this long. So they did have a break halfway through and let you mm. out. Everyone ran, ran to the toilet half halfway through. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's not a film that you, you watch on a regular basis. Then it's not one that you just go, ah, it's a rainy Sunday afternoon. And I'll stick on Magnolia. Or would you quite happily, if given the chance, just stick it on because you could? I mean, a rainy day would probably be the best opportunity to watch this film, considering its weather. But yeah, as long as it's not no. frogs. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! If if it's like that, you'd probably be going to the window thinking, uh, "Is this actually real?" I'd be surprised. <laughs> but but no, it's. I think a lot of the time, it's a struggle to fit in the longer films. Mm. So mm. I don't really fit this one in as much as. I'd like, but but I uh, I would happily rewatch it a bit more than if I had the opportunity. I mean, for now, it's been it seems unintentionally. I watch it every three years. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> hmm. You build up that extra hour every year instead of the spare <laughs> hour you've got from each year. You just use it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the real daylight savings time. <laughs> Um, okay, I mean, I was trying to think about this because this is it's it's a mega drama. Uh, it's got a massive, amazing ensemble cast. I mean, the cast in this is is brilliant. What? How would you categorize it? What, what genre would you put this in? Where where does it fit? I, I mean, drama seems to be the quite a. Drama seems to be an easy one, which you can fit yeah. in just various stuff into. Yeah. So I suppose that, because it's, I suppose it's the easiest one to slot into if yeah. you're going for the arbitrary categories. But mm. other than that, I mean, I suppose it's comedic in places. So maybe that next, but drama seems to be the best fit for me. Probably, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was thinking back to what you just said about seeing the cinema and people laughing around you. And I remember there was definitely people laughing around me when we were in this and watching it. So it, it is one of those films that's got a little bit of everything. And I think 
which probably brings us quite nicely to Paul Thomas Anderson because he's an interesting writer um, and director. This would be his third film, I think. He'd done Hard Eight and Boogie Nights before this. Which yeah, he... both have the same kind of strange sensibility. I mean, Hard Eight's got the same type of thing as this. It's a drama, but there's bits of comedy stuff in it, and Boogie Nights is just, well, yeah, it's that film <laughs> about Dirk Diggler, and he's large Diggler. <laughs> <laughs> What well was this your first introduction to Paul Thomas Anderson, or you'd seen anything by him beforehand? No, um, this wasn't my first film. Oh, what was it? Um, I think my first film might have been Boogie Nights of his. Mm, right. Yeah. I think it was just like went H and V one day. They had like five Blu-rays for thirty quid, and I was <laughs> just like, "Oh, I've heard things about this. Let's give it a try." And I was just <laughs> blown away by it that I mm. just anticipated like. I anticipated um, the Phantom Fred and Licorice Pizza, and I tried um, There Will Be Blood and yeah. Hard Eight. Still yeah. haven't seen The Master and Inherent Vice, but that Boogie Nights was the one which got me to into his work. And and this was probably like the fourth film I tried of his. But, right, okay. Uh, mm, so I'd seen a bit more of his style. Cause, yeah. I mean, I don't think we could look at there will be blood and boogie nights and see him as yeah there's probably overlapping sensibilities but it's yeah. not it's not as much as say boogie nights and this film really. yes yeah i think there's there's a lot between this uh, hard eight and boogie nights that are very very similar between the way he's written them that the, the ideas it's very much he works with a cast because he takes his cast mm. with him from film to film I mean, um, John C. Riley, I think, is in all all three of these films. So he's in Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, and then Magnolia. I think he went on then. Yeah. And I think he's in, is he in Punch Drunk Love? I can't remember now. I think he is. I think he, he worked with him for about four films before he moved on to other people. Um, um, maybe he has a smaller role. Yeah, I'm I think he's got a smaller role. Certain, there. Yeah, but... but he's got, he does have certain cast of characters that seem to appear in his films mm. do you think about this because obviously this is a thing that it came from sort of the early 2000s that directors sort of popped up and went oh yeah i've got this cast and i'm going to use the same mm. cast in every film i make and he was one of the ones that sort of started that tradition what do you think about that as a, a, a thing that directors had started doing and i think it's quite an interesting thing where you gel really well with a person you know that you can get something good out of them and you can work with each other. You can have a mutual understanding. More I hear directors talk, the more I hear them bring up how some have a no asshole policy mm. where they, they just hear bad stuff about an actor and like, no, I want a good atmosphere. I want to get this film done without us tearing each other's throats out. I'm not yeah. doing it. Yeah. So if you're, if you're no, you got somebody you're working well with, and you're not going to have violating that policy, then I can't blame anyone for settling in with a similar cast of actors no. and getting back together with an old gang of friends to make the best possible work you can. Yeah, why not? It seems the best way, doesn't it? If you're working with a group of people you enjoy working with, keep working as much as you can. Yeah, um, this exactly. I mean, this film. We've said before that it's kind of it's a long film with very difficult to pigeonhole things he's done an awful lot of music videos do you think some of that jumping between different 
styles in film, different storylines. Does that come from his music videos that he's used to making short stories, but then he's tried to get his short stories to make something bigger? Possibly. I suppose if you're working to tell a complete story within a free four minute package, then it's going to be a good, a good, um, a good groundwork for if you want to move on to say a three hour picture, mm. you're probably going to know with such a short package to about pacing and where to probably properly position everything and compact st storytelling. So that when you're expanding a bit, you can fit more stuff in, which isn't going to be so flabby to the story yeah. and, and is going to help deliver on themes and character arts and just funny moments, which the, which the audiences can enjoy. I think it's because I remember Ridley Scott used to do adverts and he was, yeah, yeah. there was a Hovis advert, he yeah, was, yeah. which he got his, essentially has made his name off. And I think stuff like that really helped his career. So he, so he could really compact things for say Alien and Blade Runner as he went on. Yeah. Um, I would usually try and go through the kind of major cast and talk about their roles in it, but uh, where do you start? Yeah, exactly. Such a massive cast. Um, I've kind of I picked up on probably the six names that most people would know from the film. Um, just wondered what you thought about these <laughs> cast members and sort of their roles in it. And there's only one place to start, which is obviously Tom Cruise. Um, I mean, at this point, he's riding high on. A hell of a career at this point. I mean, he's done so much stuff. I, I, I could probably find a list somewhere of the films he'd done up to this point. But he's, he is at this point in his career one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Probably. Um, what do you think of him? In this because this is probably very different to anything he'd done before. Mm. What do you think of Tom? Um, yeah, it's interesting how you see Tom Cruise now, and he's. It seems like he's trying to recapture his youth with doing Top Gun sequel, keep doing the Mission Impossibles and keep actually doing the stunts himself as much as he can. And it's very interesting when you look back on this sort of portion, when it felt like he was working with Paul Thomas Anderson, he was doing work with Stanley Kubrick. It felt like he was trying to stretch his muscles. And this is probably my favourite performance of his. I think he's so powerful in this role, which essentially he's a motiv motivational speaker for misogynists and the way he arrives on stage in that first scene where he's on shadows there's the operatic music which i know from 2001 a space of obviously yeah. he's coming on as though he's incel jesus yeah. but he i think he just dives into the role really well because he's got that hyper persona where he just strips off he's got a noticeable bulge in his pants he's trying to play it up for the cameras but he's also this hurt little boy who's trying to he's trying to avoid the past and he's essentially built his yeah. business around that. Yeah. He's and now he's faced with confronting the fear and hurt he's long buried. Yeah. And when he's just on that on his father's bedside and he's just sobbing, it mm. feels like he's really bearing his all into the performance. And mm. it's I wish he would take a bit more risks like that in his career now i wish he'd do more stuff like in the vein of this uh i don't 
know if he'll ever go back to this well, but I think this is one heck of a high for for him at the as it is. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's this was this performance he gives here is completely different to anything he'd done before, and it it it's very powerful. And he goes from being, to be honest, quite an unlikable dick at the start, um, through mm. to something else towards the end. And he does have an arc within the film. Um, I think Gary said before we started recording about how he actually thought that this was a very strong performance at the end. Do you want to chip in there? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, um, <clears throat> when I, before I watched the film, I, you know, I'd read about it and, and, I, and I, I saw a lot of people saying what an amazing performance Tom Cruise was putting in. And when I was, interesting, when I was watching the sort of the incel bit of it all, I, I, it was good. It was, it was a good performance, but I didn't, I didn't get it. I thought, well, this is not the most amazing performance. I don't get it until you get to that scene where he's by his father's bedside and you kind of felt, you had an idea of the character he was going to play and it was a genuine shock when he breaks down. And you see, he just, he just shows his insides, really. It's just a, a really, really sort of powerful scene. Mm. It's also very interesting as well, the, the bit earlier when, um, when, he, when, he's, when he's being interviewed by the, by, well, by that, that, the, the, the lady and, um, again, she's just getting under his skin. It's just a, yeah. a very awkward and brilliant scene to see somebody because Tom Cruise is kind of infamous for not interviewing well and to see Tom Cruise play somebody who's not interviewing very well it was interesting to see that yeah well I mean that's yeah. that's the major sort of thing that he's in for that most of his scenes is that interview scene is quite a long part of um yeah his storyline I suppose um yeah, yeah. It, 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 I think I mean I think it's a really interesting performance from him. as you say I think it'd be nice to see him go back to doing this type of thing He's tried it with other things and not really been successful. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, should we move on from Tom? I can't think who would be best to go to next. Well, Julianne Moore, because she's had a, a hell of a career as well before this point. Um, she was in Boogie Nights, apart from anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, Big Lebowski, she was in that. She mm-hmm. was in the remake of Psycho. God, all sorts of stuff before this point. that You could go back a long time. She's done a, a load of other stuff since as well. Um, what do you think of Julianne Moore then? Um, I'm probably just going to repeat myself as I pretty much <laughs> like all the cast, but Julianne Moore is easily one of my favourites of them. I think it's an interesting idea for the character. She, It's what we all know. She marries the old man. She wants his money. But it take, it's an interesting turn is that she's past all that. Yeah. She grew to love him. Yeah. And she hates herself for her past sins, how she betrayed him. Yeah. She wants to make up for it and and she feels really horrible about it. Yeah. And the way she breaks down in the pharmacy, she screams at those workers who are making judgments about her and her yeah, life. Yeah. Yeah. It's so powerful. And yeah. I mean Julianne Moore's just a phenomenal a- actress anyway, but yep. this is really one of my favorite one of my favourite portrayals, but also one of my favourite scenes she's done. I think she's phenomenal. Yep. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson just brings out some really good performances from her because she's also great in Boogie Nights. Yes, she is actually, yeah. She's, I mean, she's she's good in most things she does, to be honest. Um, mm. But I think she does, there's a different side of her in this. There's a very, um, I don't know, she just seems lost at certain points and she plays lost incredibly well but then she also plays strong 
very well. And she does both mm. sides of that in this film in, in lots of different ways. Yeah. Um, keeping going through the, the list then, my next one that I would pop onto would be um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. What do you think of our Philip? Um, I think his character, it's an interesting one because he's... It doesn't feel like his role isn't really for anything for himself, but more to yeah. help this man who he's grown close to as he's looked after him, helping him in, as he knows, his final moments are coming, helping him um, make amends from the past. And I've quite liked an early scene where it's just Philip Seymour Hoffman and Jason Robards and they're having that little back and forth and you can see that they've spent so much time together. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Phil, he can just anticipate what swear word is going to be thrown his way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think his role is more of a, on the sidelines to help out the other characters um, connect. And, but it's not, he's not just a plot device because he, you can see he really cares for, for old uh, old man, and yeah. I think he plays that so very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's again. Is he in Boogie Nights as well? I'm sure he's in Boogie Nights. Yes, he in is. Fact, I think he's in Hard Eight as well, isn't he? I'm sure he's in he both a, those first two films. Cam- yeah, he has a cameo in Hard Eight. Yeah, and I'm sure he is. He, I think he continued then with him a few times. I mean, he did mm. a load of this type of performance. He was always a very indie actor, and he did lots of. Mm this type of film, I suppose, where he got notoriety by playing this type of character that doesn't really do anything, but is a linchpin to the story. I mean, the whole story between um, Julianne Moore's character and Jason Robards' character is hinged on Phillips, Seymour Hoffman, and of course then Tom Cruise coming in at the end. It's all linked together. He's the linchpin between all of those characters. Um Moving on from him, then, you have to go to, I suppose, to Jason Robards, who, I guess, uh, at this point in time, is quite late on in his career. It was probably maybe his last film. I can't remember if he did anything else after this. Um, he's had a hell of a career up to that point, though. What do you think of him in this? Because he's, he's not someone that I was really aware of as an actor. I had seen his mm. face in so many films, but I would never go, oh, that's Jason Robards. What do you think of him in this? I think he's really good. Uh, he's this older man. He knows his, the end is near. And he just has so many regrets at the end. Um, mm. What really sticks in my mind is just that monologue he has over how he's regretful over how he treated Lily, his first wife. Yeah. And how, as a result, um, his their son, Jack, um who's the real name of Tom Cruise's character, how yeah. he ended up. And mm. it's just a powerful monologue, which yeah. you don't even need to see him delivering it. You can, you see it, it's playing while you're looking at these other characters. Yeah. And yeah. it's just such a powerful moment. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just powerful. Um, and Jason Robards does it exceptionally well. Yeah. There's a lot of those powerful moments through the film where they just seem to, mm use one person saying something or just use shots. He uses Amy Mann's soundtrack an awful lot within it, which I'm sure we'll mm. get to at some point. Um, and to use things like that and have those B 
bits of just montage of things over the top of something that's very meaningful. It, it seems to be a, a thing he does a lot through the film. Yeah. You sound like you're going to say something there, Gary. Well, just that I remember it was, again being sort of really sort of struck when the camera when you first see him, because there, there are a lot of these incredible close-ups. In fact, the camera's always moving, isn't it? The camera's always kind of just zooming yeah. in. You know. Yeah. And there's incredible close-ups of his face, and and I, I do remember being struck by how how much he looked like an old man near death. Yeah. You know, off Hollywood does these things, and they got these kind of you know just layered and makeup and things. He just, but he just looked. There's something about his skin that just looked. Like somebody near death, and, and I think he did die. He, he was die. I don't know if he was di- diagnosed at this point. He did die the following year of cancer. Yeah, he died in two thousand mm. in the year two thousand. Yeah, so it wasn't um, long after. Yeah, it wasn't long after that. I don't know what the, whether he knew his diagnosis at that point. I don't know, but don't know. the trail of somebody frail man near that sense of mortality was um, incredible. Incredibly yeah. captured. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of I, th- I think those characters there, or those actors there, or the, uh, I was going to say the root of one of the stories, but there, there's probably two or three stories in there. Um, the rest of the characters then are making up the other stories that are going on. Um, so there's John C. Riley, who probably best known for comedy more than anything else now. But what do you think of John C. Riley in this? Because he's he's not comedic, really. I think some of the more funny elements come from his portrayal of his police officer, but. What do you think of John C. Riley? John C. Riley is a solid little actor, I think. Um, <laughs> he's known more. I'm sure you'd love often... that. <laughs> I mean, he's known more often for the Will Ferrell comedies he yeah. does, like Step Brothers mm, and that. Yeah. But mm. I think it's when you see roles like in Chicago or in Magnolia or Hard Eight, it, yeah. I think it's just showing how much how he's a he's a good actor that's. I don't think gets the respect he deserves because perhaps because we are people have this preconceived notion about him and conception about idea of what he should be doing. And I think this performance is a good one. He's, he's a police officer who wants to do good. He wants to help others, Mm. but you can tell his coworkers, they don't respect him when he goes to that um, call at the beginning and he's trying to relay what's happened, what he found to the people making notes they yeah. they just ignore him they just blank mm. and they have no interest in what he's saying and i think another film would have made his journey as he's got to solve the case he's yeah. got to prove himself mm. and there were originally scenes with um the man known as the worm yeah. who was meant to be a bigger part but yeah. i think instead it just becomes a part of his journey and his idea that he doesn't need to he doesn't need to prove himself in his role. He can just, he can just learn to love himself and, and have and have a relationship with someone he cares about. Yeah. And I think it's a nice role from, from a nice actor. Really. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's amazing that, that there is a, another story in there about the worm that he decided <laughs> to cut because Gary and I were talking about how long this film is. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine if he'd left that bit of the story in? We might be in the cinema for four hours with this one. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have minded. Well, no. <laughs> Is that well, that apparently... enough already? Come on, not another story. Well, I, love apparently... I, I love John C. Riley. I, yeah. absolutely... I love. I think he's a brilliant actor. I just love yes. him. Um, and I think, I think possibly he's the character that I, I was kind of drawn to the most. And that was just a really interesting story about the 
you see cops portrayed all the time earlier. Cops yeah. portrayed all the time. And it's just such an interesting co- version of a police officer. Which is yeah. A very human version, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Flashing from kind of mundanity and then just the terror of this gun and things, you know, the gun gunplay was just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think he's a, a brilliant actor. I think he's, he's really... You're right. He's he's well known for doing sort of Will Ferrell comedies and things like that. But there's there's a there's a dramatic actor in there, which I think a lot of good comedy actors have that in them that they can do drama incredibly well, and that's why they can then lend the hand to doing a comedy role without any problems as well. Yeah, I think he's mm. I think he's brilliant. Um, the next one on my list here, and I, I might just then say leave it open and see what other ones. William H Macy. Mm. Um. Oh, yeah. He's just, I mean, again, he's just one of these actors that pops up in so many things. Um, he's one of those people that you kind of go, oh, yeah, him. <laughs> Seen him in things. Um, but he's got it. I think his role in this is just is brilliant. Completely needless. It, it's one of the stories that I think you don't need at all. I think you could have the whole film without his story at all. But at the same time, it's a really nice story and it's really interesting. Mm. What do you think of William? I think his character's interesting in how it um, essentially he's he's quite a sad little man. I mean, <laughs> the the character clearly peaked as a kid. Yeah. He had his childhood stolen from him to be portrayed as this kid genius, just so his dad could steal his money. Yeah. And now, as an adult, he's essentially a marketing tool for his boss's store. Yeah, he's. He's really struggling with that. And he's, and I think it's also an interesting contrast to the other kid, um, Stanley, who's yes. the, current, the current quiz kid, who's yep. forced into taking part in this show because his domineering dad needs mm. some money. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting contrast because I think if at the end, Stanley finally stands up for himself yep. and tells his dad, you need to treat me better. And yep. I think it's the first step into asserting himself against this really bad father. I mean, when he's he's so the dad is so so <laughs> horrible that the child would rather just cower and wet himself than yeah, speak up. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I think that first step he makes at the end is essentially the first step so he doesn't grow up to be like Donnie. Yeah. So he doesn't so he doesn't hate himself for how he turned out and so we can actually be happy rather than just yeah. mournful over what was because the dad had better had other ideas for him. Yeah. It's almost the path that Donnie should have taken but didn't get a chance to mm. take. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I thought, I thought it's also quite interesting how um, Donnie's journey is. He's unlucky in love, and his idea is if I get these braces, the <laughs> yeah. guy I don't love who has braces will fall in love with me. So yeah, <laughs> he tries to That's steal money. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I just thought it's interesting how he steals the money because he wants to get the oral surgery. And yeah. then everyone says to him, oh, you don't need it. Your teeth are fine. And then the, in the third act, his teeth are broken anyway. Yeah, yeah so exactly. I'm Chris Donny Smith. I used to be smart. Now I'm just stupid. We've talked about the major kind of characters in there. There's, there's an awful lot of other actors. Are there any other major sort of standout performances in here that you think from any of the other actors that are in here? Um, I think we need to talk about um, Melora Waters and um, Philip Baker Hall's characters. Yeah, because they're so link, I link, linked together. I think it's yeah, yeah, and links so well to John C. Reilly's as well. I suppose from that point of view as well. True. 
it's part of that same story. Mm, yeah. Mm. And actually William H. Macy, I suppose, because <laughs> Philip and Baker holds of the, Yeah. Yeah, a bit of the family um, kid as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. The interlinking stories. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of those two then? Because I, I don't think um certainly Laura did an awful lot after this, I don't think. I seem to remember that she's one of these actresses that I haven't seen an awful lot of other than this. But what do you think of her, her role here as Claudia? Funnily enough, the only role I know she did after this was she had a small appearance as a homeless woman in Venom. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, not a notable role or anything. No. Um, but it's a shame, because I think she's so powerful in this role. I mean, she she's clearly... Um, uh, from the moment on, you know she's she's hooking up with random men. She's yeah. doing drugs. She's clearly working through her some awful trauma in her past, and and it will come. It comes out much later on that <laughs> that her father as molested her mm. when she was younger. Yeah, and yeah. it's horrible. I mean, it's. Yeah when you first see her she's faced with her father and she yells he's like trying to calm her down he's saying like call, saying telling her not to be crazy and she's yelling him to not call her crazy yeah it's a little thing I caught this time but it feels like an insight into how she he likely played things down when they last saw each other yeah he like yeah. gaslit her to say no you're the problem it wasn't me yeah because and especially in that scene when he's with his wife and she's essentially dragging it out of him, yeah. it feels like he's doing the same, just playing it down, playing up that, oh, my illness, I'm not sure, rather yeah. than be culpable and just admit it. And yeah. and this clearly has, um, has had a, even more of an effect on Claudia because she has this potential happiness with John C. Riley's character. Yeah, Jim, yeah, yeah. But she pushes back because what the darkness of her past just plagues her thought and it's and let's be honest seeing the man who caused that trauma just earlier that morning yeah surely made things worse would have thought so yeah yeah and i think it's yeah it's probably the darkest subplot in this film and that's why i think having her be the final shot works really well because when you see her smile it's almost as though that the sign of there's hope yeah. that even mm. in the darkness, darkest moments, you can't, there is a light at the end of the tunnel yeah. and you can persevere forward. And when I said earlier, it's these characters struggling to find a way forward. It feels like she's found a, a way to make those first steps. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's such a wonderful way to close this film. Yeah. And, it, and that smile is, very much for the audience she definitely she, she breaks that fourth wall because she turns away and looks directly into the camera for that smile so it's a mm. it's it's a nice ending it's kind of just saying yeah look we are all gonna be all right it's fine don't worry about it um, after a three-hour film you need a good ending you need an ending with <laughs> oh, that was worth waiting for and it is an amazing mm. ending it is uh, yeah it's, it's a yeah. heck of an ending yeah i mean that's obviously that's that's the, the the other story, I suppose, that's in there, isn't this this story about um, 
Claudia and her dad, um, which is all going on at the same time as her budding romance with Jim, the police officer. So there's there's so many stories in this. And I was thinking about it when I was sort of structuring, how am I going to talk about this film? Because um, we could kind of try and go through scene by scene and go from the start to the end, but I just don't think that's, that's a possible thing to do with this because mm. there's so much stuff in it. Um, and then I kind of thought, which stories would you focus on? And it's really difficult to do and um, to focus on anything in this. Um, we've kind of touched on them all a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about the stories of the characters that are in here and how they link together. So if we go back and start with Frank T.J. Mackey and his um, Seduce and Destroy lectures, um, mm. which, I mean, it's a, a brilliant way, actually, Let's go back further than that. The start of this film is nothing to do with any of the other characters you've just mentioned there. Because we start with these real-life reenactments of things that have happened because of chance. So you sit down and watch this film the first time. As you said, you just, you'd heard good things about it. You stick it in. You stick it in the DVD player. And you're expecting Tom Cruise to come on and Julianne Moore and all those people. And instead, you get this. What did you think when this started with all these bits of chance and all that type of stories coming on? Um, I remember just being very look, I remember just being very curious about where where this was all going. I mean, because it as it comes on with those stories of chance, it feels like they're escalating mm. in how mind-boggling those coincidences are. Because the initial one is just this gentleman was killed. He lived at Greenberry Hill. Who are the three men who killed him? Green, Berry, and Hill. It's like, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And then the next one is about how um, a, the forest fire was put out by a jet full of water, and there was a scuba diver in there. Yeah. yeah. Scuba diver scooped up by a drunken pilot who <laughs> had an altercation with the scuba diver at the scuba diver's day job as a as a blackjack dealer yeah that's thinking, right yeah yes well my initial thought was oh it's Patton oswald and <laughs> <laughs> and then after that i was just like okay that's very interesting but where's this all going and then the next one is about the boy who commits suicide yeah and on his way down he's shot from a window but and the shooter turned out to be his mother who was threatening his father with a gun which they never kept loaded <laughs> which the dad's just saying she always threatens me with a gun why would i load it yeah it always makes me laugh yeah but then the gun was loaded by the son i believe and yes. if he never loaded the gun he would have survived that and and his parents would have been wouldn't have been gone to jail for as accomplices for his death and yeah it was just at that point where I was just like, oh my God, what? It, this is, it had me, it felt like with each passing one, it dug its claws further and further into my attention as though it was saying, right, brace yourself. This this film's going to be something. And it felt like it was reflected in the narration as it kept going, oh yeah, this is a coincidence. And then, yeah, this is a coincidence. And then the last one's like, I wish I could tell you this <laughs> just felt like the narrator was also being astounded at 
how mind-boggling this all yeah. is. And yeah. Genuinely, one of my favourite openings up there yeah. with the opening for Halloween, for example. And yeah, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Mm. yeah. Nothing um, in common, you... but I see what you mean, yeah. <laughs> Not just because they're good openings. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, nothing in common. <laughs> um, but what about you two? What do you guys think of this opening? Go on, Gary, I'll let you. <laughs> I, I loved it. I, I, really did, I really did enjoy the opening. Um, I think mm. it really sort of set its stall. And, you know, the suggestion that it was going to be, you know, the, you know, the theme about chance and um, was, 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 was there. And also the, the possibility that it was going to be comedic, that it yeah. wasn't going to take itself necessarily 100% seriously, you know, and, um, I, I did enjoy it. I think the only problem was it was, it was such a good beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it set itself up. Ah. I had this idea it was going to be like a Corn-esque kind of comedy, you know, something yeah. ridiculous and funny. And then it, it for that, it, it wasn't that, you know, mm. well, it was, it, there was elements of that, but it wasn't that. And mm. it seemed as if it set itself up for a film that it then wasn't quite, for me, for my yeah. taste. Um, yeah. I, did, I love I love kind of Fortiana. I, I read all these. I, I love that kind of you know fall, we've talked about falling frogs and this kind of you know mm. just the, the, the synchronicity and mystery. I love all that sort of stuff. So yeah, a bit like you, James. I was just really leaning in, going, "Oh, brilliant! This is a film for me." Yeah, yeah I must admit, I, when when they finished with the third one and then got the film, I missed it. I wanted more of those little bits. I wish he kind of I don't know either saved up a couple of extras or put them in. You know, he's got the sort of point where he stops and goes, it's still raining. And you get those mm. cards come up. Yeah. It would been great if yeah. they just had another one of those chance stories at that point and then get back to the, the main story and just break it up. And I know that would have made the film probably now at three hours and a half. But I think you're allowed to cut some of the bits out as well, to be honest. I agree. I think that would have been a nice idea. Yeah. To, it to, is. They're, they're brilliant bits of, of just stuff that really happened and just the chance mm. that's in there and this whole I mean the film is all about chance and that's what he's trying to set up in this bit isn't it that every story is somehow interlinked and the chance of meeting someone at this point in time in your life are really slim and the chance of moving on from this mm. point this point and the different routes you can take as we were saying about um the, the two quiz kids you know that one stands up for himself, the other one didn't. And look at the, the mm. difference in their roots that they're then going to have in life. Um, should we talk oh, about... Sorry, can I ask, because oh. yeah. uh, you guys might know, is, is the narrator one of the characters? I, I uh, the narrator is, I believe he's credit... I've got it. The narrator, let's see, played by Ricky Jay, who also plays... Oh, Bert Ramsey, who's works on that TV show Philip Baker Hall's character is doing. He's the one who's, oh, right. who's saying, like the show must go on and right okay right so, so he's, he's, yeah he he's just one of the actors that works on it yeah rather than being right. a major player right mm. okay right, yeah right, right. one I just... thing I was gonna say is the trio of um, initial stories feels like it mirrors the film rather well because I think with each um, title card about the weather. It feels like things are chasing, changing because you can feel the build up as like the weather worsens, the characters' yeah. actions grow more frenzied and chaotic, mm, yeah. and then it all comes to a head once the frogs rain down. Yeah, and it feels like the three stories mirror that because you have the initial just simple coincidence yeah. to something that's a bit more frenzied and chaotic, 
And then when the last one comes on, just like the frogs, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Definitely. There's, there's a big element of that, I suppose, isn't it? That the, the stories do ramp up. And all of the stories are kind of playing out at the same time. So they're all playing out over the top of each other. And we skip backwards and forwards between each each group. Should we start and try and go through what happens in each of these stories to a certain point? Or we could just kind of go, which are the best scenes? I'm, I'm not sure how to do it now. Um, let's... Um, it might be a bit sprawling if we do it. Or yeah. Going through a three-hour film. Yeah. <laughs> but let's just go. If, if, if you've stuck this DVD in, um, back in the good old days, we had video recorders, and you could speed things up much easier. Um, presumably, you have to watch the three chance stories at the start because without those, mm-hmm. you don't know what's going on. What would be the next scene if you could then speed up to a point? Where would you stop and go? This is the next scene that I have to watch. Oh, see, <laughs> I oh, see, I don't know because <laughs> the stories intercut. Yeah. And see, in between like whole scenes like um julianne moore's scene in the pharmacy keeps get intercutting with other stories so yeah you're honestly thrown me because i <laughs> i love the film but i couldn't when it cr- cross cuts like that i just couldn't tell you in all yeah is there one, one story which you think is the main story i mean often what, when you're sort of analyzing film you're going who's the film about who's it really about is there oh. is there a character who you think it's about who's sort of I know it's an ensemble piece, but even then, often there is a character who yeah. sort of were asked to sort of see most of the story through their eyes. Um, hmm. I suppose. See, I want to say Tom Cruise's character and his whole journey with his dad, but I do wonder if because when this came out, the attention was on Cruise. He was yeah. the only actor to get nominated at the Oscars for this, and. I do wonder if it's coloured a bit by him being the biggest star in the film. Hmm. But I do think his complete arc and his whole journey with his dad and especially the devastating final moments, I think Hmm. that's probably the closest you're going to get to a lead if you had to pick him off among this. Yeah. So I wonder whether it was John C. Riley's character because you you see him, how much of he's the first character, he's very... Is he the first character introduced to? He's very he's introduced very early on, and we see him throughout. And then it, mm. he's yeah. the last character we see. It feels like, you know, I was wondering whether it felt, to, and to me, it felt like it was his, it was his story. He's also the most normal of the characters, and some maybe Bob and Philip Seymour <laughs> Hoffman. He's the most normal of the characters. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I think that the all the stories. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. They all do interlink. It's like I say, it was when I was I was going through trying to write some plan of how I was going to attack talking through this film. And I couldn't see a way that we could just talk through the whole film because it's just too long. You'd end up with a, a four-hour podcast to talk about a three-hour film. Um, but as you say, and I've done it with other podcasts, what other episodes we've done, we've kind of done this speed through. And you're probably right. How do you speed through? Because you then would miss something that was crucial or you'd end up having to speed through another crucial bit to get back to the scene that you were trying to watch in the first place. Um, are there any like real standout moments or a, a moment where you just go, that is just, that bit there 
encompasses that part of the film, even if it's in a couple of other stuff. But I don't know, Tom Cruise, an element of Tom Cruise's story, that that, that is the moment that makes the T.J. Mackey story work. Um, okay, um, just for the Tom Cruise's story, I think the moment which makes it work is the interview scene where, in the interview, when he's the interviewer is getting to the bottom of the lies he's told yeah and telling him about and relaying about how oh you lied about your father dying and your mother still being support being supportive of you she died when you were young and you were forced to take care of her and he's just there seething with rage refusing to say anything yeah and the only thing he really says is i'm quietly judging you yeah and he's being forced to contend with these lies he told were which as much as it was to sell his product it was also to kind of push out the past hurt he's felt and what he's experienced a way of fooling himself as much as it is to fool other people yeah. and when he has those laid out before him he just he doesn't want to confront it he just wants he's just seething with rage and he just wants to sit and sulk like a little child yeah because that is him in the core he's a child who's trying to trying to just pretend himself to be a man who's not bothered by these things which really hurt him deep down Hmm. okay yeah i mean that that's i I was gonna say that i think that that sort of interview scene with tom cruise is probably my favorite bits that tom cruise in other than at the end where he's he probably does the powerful breakdown, but yeah, it's it's mm. wonderfully shot. Um, so if we look then at the sort of linking story that, which is um, the Partridge family, which I think is great, uh, Linda Partridge and Neil Partridge, um, along very with very different their, TV show, isn't it? It would be <laughs> <laughs> um, linked with um, Phil, the nurse, who's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, there's obviously this kind of three stories going on here because there's Julianne Moore's sort of regrets over what's happened with her and her husband the fact that then there's jason robert's story the fact that he's dying and then philip Seymour hoffman who's trying to help him out as much as he can in these these final days what's the sort of pinnacle moment in in any of those sort of parts of the story um hmm i i think it'd be um I've already mentioned it before, but when Jason Robards is giving that speech about his yeah. regrets and yeah. that, I think that really cuts to the core of a character who could have just been essentially just laying there while everyone mm. found, reflects their emotions on yeah. him. And I think that's such a vulnerability and a showcase for clear regret and hurt about past actions. And I think that's one of the standout moments in the film. Fair enough. Um, I guess with Julianne Moore, it's the, the breaking down in the pharmacy. That's sort of her pinnacle moment of working out that she's mm. she's there. Um, what about flicking on from that? You then get the the John C. Reilly story with um, Laura Walters, so um, Officer Jim and Claudia. Now, obviously, there's there's no real link between those guys and. Frank and 
Lindera and Earl, it's kind of a completely different set of stories. Is there a pinnacle moment with their sort of relationship, do you think? Or is it the, the final moment where Melora turns the camera and actually smiles at us? Is that the, the pinnacle moment that everything's going to be all right for her? Or what do you think? Um, I think that is a pinnacle moment for them because it's as much as it's John T. Riley trying to say, don't I'm not if you want you can keep pushing me out, but I'm gonna be here for you because yeah. I love you for who you are. And it's her being happy that that there is some positivity. She has something, there is some hope for her. Yeah. Um, in the individual stories, I think John C. Riley's one is probably he when he see um in the after he, when the frogs come down, he sees William H. <laughs> Macy's character just all banged up and his instinct is to help him and in the aftermath he just talks with him he understands him and he just helps him do the right thing and he doesn't arrest him or anything he just helps him to right some wrongs and to essentially correct the mistakes which could have ruined his life from something which he was going to correct in the first place yeah and I don't know about Melora Waters one. Um, I suppose considering her journey, the final shot is probably the best one. Mm. But I do like the moment when the frogs are coming down and her mother comes rushing in and it feels like their family, them two, their relationship is reunited after the sickening lies of her father and the mother's husband. Yeah. Just kept them apart for 10 years as yeah we said mm. yeah which obviously then brings us to father mm-hmm. um i mean he's not a particularly likable character i don't think at all um mm. and i don't suppose he's meant to be although he's a family favorite on television i suppose he's got that other persona to him that everyone actually loves him um, as this quiz court, quiz show host, I couldn't say those words probably there. Um, Cosby figure. Yeah, yeah, very much so. What What do you think of that that story there then, and how that all plays out? Um, well, once you know where it's going with his revelation, mm. his scenes take such a sinister undertone. Mm. And I think because initially I was intrigued as to the relationship and. I suppose my sympathies were a little with him because he's a sick old man and he's yeah, yeah. clearly suffering. Yeah. But when you find out what a manipulative monster he was, yeah. then it's I think it's interesting to see him just crumbling really. And um in all honesty, the key scene for him is probably the revelation scene where it all comes out. Yeah. Do you think he's redeemed? No, because um, I do think I do think he tries to get out of it by saying like, oh, the illness, I can't remember if I did. And yeah. he can't explicitly say to his wife, no, I didn't. She's my daughter. Of course I wouldn't. Yeah. He has to have the workaround. And he, drop, he tries to off himself, but the frog gets to him first. And... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great, those frogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good old frog. Yeah. Um, which I guess then leads us to the the final two stories, I suppose, mm. which are the stories of the the new quiz kid 
Stanley Spectre, um, who is on the the show that Jimmy Gator does, which is what kids know. Um, and obviously William H. Macy, who used to be on that show when he was a kid. Um, now, Jeremy Blackman, I think, is the, the name of the, the child actor that plays Stanley Spectre in this. I don't think he's done anything else, but I think he's, he's brilliant in this. He just has a, a something about him. Um, what do you think of his story going through and his, his sort of arc through this? Um, on its own, I think it, I've, as I said before, I think it's an interesting contrast to pair these two characters together. Mm. On its own, I think the Stanley story is quite, uh, it's quite interesting to see how he's essentially thrown into this thing he doesn't want and how yeah. he's, and how it's affecting him yeah. and how he's essentially used by the other kids on his team on Absolutely. the show. And yeah. Because when that kid just keeps saying, answer it or I'll hit you, it's like, yeah. you're on the show. Why aren't mm. you answering anything? Yeah. What good are you? Yeah, because he's, he's um, not liked particularly by the other kids. He's literally just no. there because he's the brain power, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, because when he's in school, he just has that time to himself in the library where he's reading yeah. through all these books and kind of feel for him because he could, it just gives an insight that, he probably doesn't have any friends and going mm. on the show probably ostracized him even more from the kids in the school. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the scene where he just refuses to get up because he's wet himself and it, and he's refusing to be pushed around by the other kids in this moment. I think that's probably the core, the key moment for his character that yeah, yeah. shows he's not going to go down the same mistakes that, go down the same journey that um the whiz kid uh unfortunately did yeah which i think then links to that final story i suppose there's possibly other stories in this that we haven't mentioned because there are other things mm. that are going on through the whole thing um but quiz kid donnie smith who's william h macy's character um i mean his is i think his is possibly the oddest of the stories in my opinion because it has a link to it as i say if you work with it with Stanley Spector's story, there's kind of this, that's what Stanley could become. Mm. Um, whereas Stanley's story is very much, I suppose, this is what could have happened to you if you'd stood up to them. What do you think of this this story with, with William H. Macy, how it plays out? and um, See, that's the thing. On its own, this might be possibly the most expendable story of them. Yeah. I would agree. I think, um, I do think it's, as I said, he's quite a sad character and I do, is unfortunate to see how his life has gone. And it's probably a good mirror of how some of the less fortunate child actors turned out. Yeah. um, I don't know what I'd consider as a key scene for him because, I mean... Uh, I suppose probably at the end when he puts the money back because he's been through the dark, the dark moment. He's made a mistake. He's yeah. had to pull himself out and with help from John C. Riley's officer. And I would have liked another scene just to show like where next for the character. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
just something to further show he's going in the right direction. He's not going to still be a bit of a sad dog kind of mm. guy who's like, maybe he, because he has that big check from his time on the show. Yeah, yeah. Hanging in his, hanging in his um, apartment. A great set piece, by the way. Yeah. Um, but I've, uh, maybe if he took that down, so yeah. it's like, he's moving on from who he was and he's finally becoming his own person rather than just reliving right dealing with the memories of when he peaked as a kid yeah. and just yeah. something like that i mean is that not part of the, the, the thing because none of the stories really have endings as such i mean we said that mm. you know the film itself has a great ending that she turns to the camera and she smiles and you know it's going to be all right. But is that not just the way you're left that it's possibly that they're all going to be all right, but they might not all be all right. Is that not part of the sort of beauty of the, the film that you're never quite sure what happened next? Yeah. Yeah. That is a fair point. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't see um, as much as you see, um, see a, turning and smiling at the end and like reconciling with her mother mm. you don't essentially see them um, openly discussing it or doing the big hollywood moments that mm. uh, any cookie cutter film would do a thousand times over yeah it leaves it a bit more open for your own interpretation uh, yeah yeah i suppose you that is a good point <laughs> yeah it's just adding an extra scene in to just kind of go his all right you'd have to then add another scene in here and there Everyone. and everywhere else to go because are they all right? I think it's it's leaving it with just that smile at the camera at the end to say, do you know what? We are all right. Because it, it's directed directly at us as the audience and not at John C. Riley. It's mm. very much, we're just letting you know we are all going to be all right. I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's a very clever technique to use the fourth wall like that and a breakthrough, which some films have done well and some films done really badly. But I think this one just is very clever to do it very final final scene like that yeah i did like the ending i think the endings of all the stories were nice that they weren't it did feel um sort of just it, it, it felt that the, the stories had run their course yeah that something mm. had happened something had changed there's a change but it, yeah it didn't feel the need to completely tell us and then what happened next there was, there was an open-endedness to it which I, yeah. an ambiguity which i really liked Apart from maybe that the story between the police officer and that woman where he says she turns to the camera and it, it's one of those sort of suggests the happy ending the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. The potential of a happy ending the most, which I think, again, you've deserved at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. Not, exactly. Banging on with the length of the film, but also you've been through an awful lot of difficult, you know, bits of humanity. And I think it's, just, it's yeah. nice to the end to have something that sounds yeah. like, a, mm. feels like a resolution. Yeah. Exactly. It's the MFF Awards. So we're going to do this awards for each of the films. And then Gary and I have got the tough job at the end episode. We're going to try and, I don't know, work out which was the best scenes in all of them or whatever else. So we'll start with standout performance. award for length. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we'll add that one in later. Like top trumps, isn't it? Length one. <laughs> oh, film top trumps. Maybe we should do that. Should top do trumps. My favourite film, top trumps, and we could put all these things on yeah, there. That's the, that's the uh, last episode, isn't it? My favourite film, Top Trumps. Yeah, we'll do it merchandising. It'll be good. Um, 
So, standout performance is the first one. James, who's your standout performance in this? Um, as much as it's probably the most obvious one, I'd go with Tom Cruise. Right. Just for just because, just he, because it's Tom Cruise. That, <laughs> that final scene as well with him. Yeah. Gary? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say John C. Riley. He doesn't right. seem to be doing an awful lot, but I just loved his character. And yeah, kind yeah. of like mumbling gentleness and just, I, I just, he was the character I was drawn to the most. Yeah. But I, I totally agree with James as well. I mean, um, there was some, it's difficult, it's very difficult. There were some amazing performances, weren't there? Um, yeah. Tom's was definitely one of them. Yeah. I'm going to go Philip Seymour Hoffman. Just think that he is the linchpin of so many parts of the stories in this. Um, and I think that without him, there's a lot of stuff would not work. I just think he's, he's just got a quiet air to him. I think he did most of his films and just, yeah, that's my, I think any, that's my... I think any film with Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, you've got to ask why aren't, why aren't I picking him as the best actor? <laughs> yeah. He is the best actor most films yeah. he's in. Why isn't he in more films? Or why wasn't he in more films? Why wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, favorite scene. Um, I go for the this scene where everyone sings to that Amy's man song Wise mm. Up. Yeah. I think it's just they're all everyone's at a dark point in their lives. They're on crossroads, they don't know what to take because it's an uncertain future. And I think it could have easily been laughable, it could have been yeah. ridiculous, mm. but mm. I think as as you said, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's background with music videos worked really well. And what could have been the most ridiculous moment is one of the more emotionally devastating, yeah. I think. Yeah. And it's just not easily forgotten. Yeah. I must admit that that's what I've got down on, on my list as well, my my favorite scene. Um right. also think it's a, a, mm. br- a brilliant song. I, I love that song. Um Actually, I love Amy, I love Amy Mann. Actually, I've got most of her albums. I think she's a brilliant artist. Um, so this is a, a really good film for me from that point of view. But I just think that's a yeah. Okay, Gary, favorite scene? So many favorite scenes weren't there. Um, I am going to go for. I'm going to go for a scene with, with, with Tom Cruise at the bedside scene because it absolutely blindsided me. Yeah, I had read. Before I seen the film, I'd read that, you know, Tom Cruise got this amazing performance. You've got to see for Tom Cruise performance. And I assumed it was the interview scene, which is an amazing scene. Yeah. Um, I, I see, I didn't like, I did not like Tom Cruise in the initial kind of, um, you know, when he was doing that sort of that, that, that testosterone driven, but I, just, I, I didn't get that. And then, then when you, then when you, then you go, I get it. You have to, you have to see that to have him sort of be picked apart yeah. by that interviewer. Th- this is the amazing scene they're talking about, but I didn't think it was that amazing. And so I was blindsided when, when he gets to the bedside. And I'm just annoyed by Tom Cruise at this point because he's not as amazing as I was expecting him to be. Yeah. And then he breaks down. I was like, oh, Nelly swore. Oh, my gosh. You know, it was just, I was, I was blindsided. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just so emotional and raw for someone. Like, you know, it was just, it was, it was brilliant. It was a lovely scene. Yeah. And I was just, yeah, surprised by it. Yeah. There's so many good scenes, though. Oh, there is. There's, I also did love, and because Christian said, I did love that first, it's not a scene, but a sequence where he goes into the apartment and there's a woman in there who's basically get out. It's like the most stressful scene. Yeah. And he's got his gun and then he hears somebody clonking around in the different rooms. Like, oh my gosh, you can get shot. Yeah. I, I yeah. thought it was a brilliant sequence. Yeah. At the end of the time. I loved it. Yeah. 
I mean, there is there's there's loads of scenes you could pick up as being excellent scenes in this. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, favorite one line or favorite one liner, whatever. Most quotable line, even. Oh, um, you. Okay, I've got one, but it's not something I endorse. <laughs> it's, it's Tom Cruise's. <laughs> Tom Cruise's motivational mantra of <laughs> yeah, you know the one I mean. <laughs> I know the one you mean. Yeah, I'm the, sure. The users home can't see this, but Gav's actually got that on a poster behind him. I can see it. <laughs> he lives by that mantra. <laughs> what about you, Gary? What's your favourite one line? Uh, it's not one line, but it's a, it's a moment right at the very beginning when uh, <laughs> when. Uh, Again, John C. Riley's getting in the car, and he's got this. He looks like an atypical. He doesn't look like a kind of a you know. He's not. He's not a, a, a superhero cop, and he gets in this car. But he's got this gun and things, and he's just so jaded, driving off. Just he kind of goes, you know, how are we going to get? How, how do I? How do I get through life? How do, when we move through life? How do I do good? And then yeah. he kind of just goes, I've no effing idea, and it just <laughs> and it sets up the film. But you know, for me, yeah. you know, yeah. lean and go. Oh, how on earth do you do good? And then you just see all this horrors of humanity. And that's, that was me for the, was the question through the whole film, really. And yeah. at the end, I suppose you get the answer to that for, for his character, at least. Yeah, yeah. You see, for me, it, it, you mentioned it earlier, actually, James, it's in the interview scene with Tom Cruise, where she asks him, what are you doing? And he just says, what am I doing? I'm quietly judging you. And it's just the, the way he says it, it was yeah. such conviction and just this look of seriousness on his face. I just think that one's a, a brilliant line and so beautifully put as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. um, cameo, and there's lots of them. So best cameo. Have you got one? Oh, he's got um, on the internet. Look at that. <laughs> I'm literally having to have a look. Because... Oh, shall I go with my three then? I've got three. Uh, go for it. Okay. First one is uh, Stanley Berry in the, the start section. Uh, of Green, Berry and Hill. Stanley oh, Berry right. is Neil Flynn, who was the janitor in Scrubs oh. for many years. Uh, he was also in, uh, what was the other comedy he was in? The Middle, he was in that. Um, hmm. Just one of those characters that pops up on TV a lot, but uh, brilliant performance by him. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson is in it. He plays the guy who steals the sign at some point, can't remember where it was, but he's in there. And of course, Amy Mann. It's the hot date in the infomercial that they do. All so right, Amy Mann's actually in there as well. So there's just little bits like that. I like I like when they, they can get people in that shouldn't be there, but the, when the director pops up, I think it's always good to have the director pop up in his own. There's film. a police officer. There's a police officer who I thought was the director when it was on. I think, oh, is that is that the director? But I don't think uh, it wasn't. I don't think it was. No. Yeah, no. He did look a bit like um, uh, uh, what do you call him? Paul Thomas. Yeah. Have you got a favourite cameo, Gary? Is the one that you spotted, or? Yeah, I don't know if you noticed him um, in the towards the end in the the rain sequence. Kermit, um, <laughs> a very brief appearance. Uh, I think it was his last role as well, wasn't it? Uh, tragically. Well, it's not easy being green. It's not. <laughs> Slash blood red. Yeah. Uh, have you found one on the internet then? <laughs> yeah, um, if it. If it counts as a cameo, I'm going to go for Alfred Molina's. Oh, yeah, we didn't even discuss Alfred Molina. He's a brilliant Mr. Mount. He's just doing his thing of portraying another ethnicity on screen. And 
Well, but in in that little time, he he's he just has that charisma that makes Alfred Molina yeah. such a wonderful presence whenever he appears. Yeah, yeah. We didn't mention him at all. You're right. It's, it's it's. I think there's so much other stuff going on in the film that that, that scene kind of you kind of forget it because it's it's there at the start mm. and then you skip on, don't you? Um, is there anything in the film that dates it particularly, other than Tom Cruise's attitude to women and sex, which I think dates the film massively as being something from the the start of the year two thousand? Is mm. there anything else? There probably is, but my mind's <laughs> drawing a blank. Um, <laughs> I'm keen to hear if you guys have anything. Well, my main one would be Tom Cruise's attitude towards women and sex and so on. Ah. But I think that's that's his story as well. It's so it, it? it's not it's not written it's not written from that point of view of that's how it should be. It's very much that's the character and the way they've put him. Um, I don't know if there's, there's much else. The, the animal cruelty, obviously, what those frogs is is just terrible. You know. Um, I'm not Stunt sure. Frogs. Maybe Stunt, Stunt frogs. frogs. Oh, of course. Yeah. The, uh, they created so many different. Oh, here we go. Over 7,900 rubber frogs were made. Wow. The rest were CGI. No real frogs were harmed. Oh, there you go then. So animal cruelty doesn't mean them. We're all right. Don't worry about it. Mm. I forget about that. Well, <laughs> did you see anything, Gary, that you thought <laughs> well, really did? The thing that, yeah, really stood out to me. I think I, I, it's a very sort of LA thing. I mean, I've never been to LA before, but I don't believe it's just full of white rich people. <laughs> and it's very, you know, for a cast that's got such a huge ensemble yeah. of cast, all they yeah. could do was portray white rich people. Yeah. Um, when it started off again, the the story with the cop was kind of very blue color, and he goes in, he, and he's in yeah. his apartment. And there's this uh, 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 black woman in there, and and. You think, oh, okay, it's going to be this kind of. It's not just going to be another LA film set yeah. in the world of rich white people. Mm-hmm. But um, then it is. But, but then it is. I mean, yeah. what? Are, what? Are, I don't. I just think we really hope. Hopefully, it'd be hard to make a film like that now without people going. Mm. Hang on a second. Where's Where's everybody else? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's not really helped when Orlando Jones had so many roles which were cut out. Yeah. Yeah, because Orlando Jones would have been the worm, wouldn't he? The tight yeah. worm in that part of the story. Uh, and His only is... bit now is taking John C. Riley's gun, which yeah. not the best representation for a black man on screen. No, no, and the young kid as well, and that young kid. There's yeah. a brilliant bit where John C. Riley's talking to this young kid, and the kid like <laughs> you read at the top of his head, this kid's head, and he just talks like <laughs> nonsense to John C. Riley. He goes, uh, yeah, whatever. It's a really funny little spit. Yeah. Uh, but again, like, the only representation of a black person is a criminal, is. you know, a young criminal yeah. kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's a bit where when the woman's committing suicide, or trying to commit suicide, and the kid comes along and goes, oh, right, he's going to save her. Oh, no, he's no, he's going to steal her purse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Just, yeah. Uh, so hopefully that kind of representation. Yeah, that change. type of representation is not something we should have in film anymore. And I think that's mm. that's probably the major Not thing. Thoughtlessly, it was just thoughtless, no. wasn't it? It was just yeah. a, 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 a voice where people go, "This is the, this is what L is like. It's just full of rich white people." And it's just, <laughs> that's, that, that thoughtlessness has gone a bit. I think that leads us nicely to the fact that this is a twenty-three-year-old film, or be twenty-three years old this year. How do you think it still holds up as a film? Um, it's still, it's, it's still as powerful for me 
as it was when I first watched it um, six years ago. I don't know how it played in 99, but I think I think it still holds up remarkably well. Then, apart from, as was mentioned, yeah. prob- troubling depictions of race and whitewashing LA, yeah. it's other than that, I think it holds up really well. I think there is. My next question is always, is there anything we've missed? But I think there's loads that we've missed because <laughs> um, it's such a long film and there's so much goes on. Um, we've kind of talked around the major. Is there anything else that I suppose you thought I really must mention such and such or such and such? Is there anything like that that you'd like to kind of air at this point in time before we wrap it all up? <laughs> I don't think I have anything. I mean, I like that quote which kept coming back about the past it not being done with us, which was yeah. really well depicted with the story of Frank and Jimmy Gator. Yeah. But I think that's all I really want to mention that I haven't. Yeah. I think I think there's some there's some lovely bits of writing. There's some nice touches in the way he comes back to the same thing over and over again. I mean, the, the film could be one one story and say the same things that it says within six stories, but I think it's interesting to do it in the way he did. Yeah. Anything for you, Gary, that well, you wanted to... Well, well I, 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 I can't remember whether you said it off air before we came on or whether you said it at the beginning, but you did You just said it to me earlier on about, um, about Netflix. I, just, I, oh, I wonder yeah. whether they'll be able to make a film like this now. I, I mean, this is Gav's point of mine, but basically yeah. Gav was saying to me, you know, um, it, it, you know, because of Netflix, this would be a Netflix series now, wouldn't it? If you wanted mm. to tell all those interlocking stories, interweaving stories, it would be succession now, um, yeah. rather yeah. than trying yeah. to I mean, with three hour films. So I wonder whether these films are, are, are gone really because of Netflix. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to see what if someone bought this property, I suppose, now and said, you know, actually, we're going to remake Magnolia and said, but we're going to remake it as a series and do, mm. you know, mm. a 10 a ten episode mini series type thing, all these limited run series that do, mm. and see what they could do with it, you know, and bring back some of the bits that they've, that end up on the cutting room floor, I suppose, and make the story. Um, maybe give you those those endings that you wanted, James, where everyone does end up happily ever after. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. I think it would be a lot more accessible, wouldn't it? I mean, to an audience, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, if, if they were able to do that, just in terms of the, the time the, of it, yeah. The thing is, though, you say three hours is a long time, but I bet you, if there was ten episodes on Netflix, you'd binge it all in one night anyway. Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Good point. Yes. So, Good why point. is a three-hour film so bad when you'd probably binge ten hours quite happily if it was on Netflix? This just feels a bit like a hostage situation. Like, after a while, we can't, there's no end, end in sight. I suppose, yeah, with a Netflix, so you know it's going to end at some point, and you can switch it off at that point. Right, James. The tough bit now, and I do know it's tough because I've done it myself. Uh, <laughs> this is the toughest one as well. You've picked yeah. the hardest film. Yeah. Really, to... mm. I'll give you some time to think. Um, but can you sell this film for me in about 30 <clears throat> seconds? No, but I'll try anyway. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know those films about various different people who don't seem connected, but they actually are? This is one of the better ones. <laughs> think of it as a wide tapestry of fantastic characters played by such great actors. Mm. And it touches upon the way parents' actions impact upon their kids, how people yearn for love in the various forms it comes with, 
how we're all uncertain about moving forwards when life seems hopeless and dark. But it's also it also manages to be funny and uplifting and offer real hope by the end of it. Also, as Alfred Molina. <laughs> Always a good thing. Yeah. Excellent. That's I don't brilliant. know how long that was. I didn't time it. But <laughs> 29 seconds. 29 oh. seconds. <laughs> my, my timer there managed to manage. 29 seconds. That's good going. Um, ish. I think, ish. I think that's about it. I think we've covered everything. Um, where can people find you out there on the big wide web of world and things? Thanks for having me. Um, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. That's spelled with two Ds. And as I mentioned earlier, I write reviews. I put my art, any articles I make and podcast appearances at my site, thereviewingrodders.co.uk. So come and check it out and hopefully you have a good time. Brilliant. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much, James. Thanks for having me. Cheers, James. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for coming in, James. It was great chatting to you about Magnolia. I had I said it in the the interview there. It is one of my favorite films. I do like this film. I saw it way back at the cinema when it was on, so I have a, a little bit of a love for it, I suppose. Um, next week on the show, Ooh. we're going action. Oh, we're going to die hard. Oh yes, yeah, a great talk about, talk about extremes from Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> That's now, what this, this podcast is all about. This is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. Die Hard. Die Hard. A proper Christmas film. We like a Christmas film. We've had a couple of them already. Um, Die Hard. We talked with the Jacked Up Review shows, Cam mm. Sully, about Die Hard. And here is All Cam the way from Sully. the US of A. All the way from And I think you can tell that in his trail. Here is Cam's trail for Die Hard. A divorced NYPD detective has to... Uh, save a bunch of unusual hostages from uh, intruders who aren't who they claim to be. (laughs) A divorced NYPD detective is past his prime saving all kinds of people in one chaotic building. I do love that voiceover man accent that he has. (laughs) It's so good. Um, That's Cam. That's Die Hard. That's next week. I think that's us done, is it? Yes, that's it. Great. Until next week from us, bye-bye. See you next week. Bye. 
Finally, thanks to Acast for hosting the website and to Max Smith for the theme tune composition. To get in touch with the podcast, remember that website is www.myfavoritefilm.com. Thank you.